Good afternoon, church. Uh, our reading today is taken from Mark 11, verse 1 to 11. Let us all stand up on our feet. Let's read it together in the count of three. One, two, three. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a cold tide, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a cold tide at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the cold? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is who was in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into, and when he had looked around and everything as it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You guys may be seated. Thanks, John. Happy 26th anniversary. And if you miss out yesterday and you come to church and you start to think, hold on a second, this place looked very different. From what I remember last week, there's nothing problem with your site, okay? We changed the decoration, and it's amazing, right? Um, I love the blinging, blinging behind me. Hopefully, it keep help you to stay awake during the sermon. We'll see. Have you ever felt so convinced about something, so sure that you got it right, it was impossible for you to be wrong, and yet you were wrong? Anyone? It happens to me a lot, especially in regarding to people's names, all right? I can tell you countless stories where I get people's name wrong, and it mostly happened for whatever reason on Sunday night after I preach, okay? Let me tell you just one story. Many years ago, uh, we went to eat at Shalom after church, and during dinner, Edric woke up to me with a man next to him and asked, Yos. Do you remember him? And I thought to myself, yo, bro, why are you doing this to me? What did I do to deserve this cruel punishment? Because he knew me very well. That's a very bad question to ask me on Sunday night. Okay, do not do what Edric did, guys. So I look at the guy, and I remember his face. Oh, I knew him. And I replied, of course, I remember you. You know, we used to meet when we were still at UTS. You're Eric, right? Actually, I don't remember what I called him that night. But he looked at me, blinked at me a couple of times and say, no, I am mad. Or some other names that I don't remember as well. <laughs> now, you need to know something about me. When, when I mentioned that name, Eric, I did not make it up. It's not as if, you know, I just blurred out whatever name that pops in my head. No, 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 no. I was fully convinced that his name was Eric. Like a few weeks ago, during dinner at, uh, after RSI, we were talking about a rice dish in a Vietnamese restaurant. 
and I call it crazy rice. I was convinced I was right, but I was wrong. You know what it was? Broken rice, right? Crazy and broken? Yeah, similar. Lara. But in tonight's passage, we see people who are convinced that they get Jesus' identity right, but they're very wrong. And I believe that could be our problem today. Because most of us, we probably grew up in church, so we read the story of Jesus. We heard the story of Jesus. We might even pray to Jesus. But we miss out on who He is. Because here's what happened. A lot of time, you and I, we already have our own preconception on who Jesus should be. So rather than letting Him tell us who He is, we tell Him, this is who you are. And let me give you three most common misconceptions of Jesus. First, the grocery store Jesus. Okay, if you never heard this statement before, because I made it up, okay? (laughs) Trying to be creative. The grocery store Jesus. You know, what, what is the grocery store Jesus? Jesus is the place where you can go and get whatever you want in life. Whatever you need, go there. Go to Jesus. Or second, the law from Jesus. So you come to this Jesus asking him to defend you to protect you, and you get the justice that you want from him. Or third, the travel agent Jesus. So we want Jesus to make our life comfortable and easy, to take us to a place where we can just like, ooh, this is amazing. So oftentimes what happens is we have our own idea of Jesus. So we created Jesus of our own making rather than asking him who you are, God. But the problem, not only that, I think the problem goes a lot deeper because we actually prefer our own Jesus rather than the Jesus that we see in the Bible. We rather have Jesus care about us and our kingdom than him and his kingdom. And this is not going to work. Because in today's passage, we see for the first time, finally Jesus revealed himself as the true king of Israel in public. And he's a different kind of king than what the people expected. Let me give you the context first. See, now we're in chapter 11. Okay, Isaac said earlier, we might have less than 10 sermons left for the book of Mark. He's wrong. Okay? This is 27. We're going to go up to 40 sermons. So we're now in chapter 11. So we're more than halfway. But what's interesting is, if you look at uh, the book of Mark, the first 10 chapters actually focus on the first three years of Jesus' ministry. But then the last six chapters, from chapter 11 to the end, is actually focused on the last one week of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' life, in fact. So it tells us something, that this one week is apparently very important to the point that all authors of the gospel actually zoom in and spend a lot of time talking about the last one week of Jesus' life. Why? Because this is the week that all creation has been waiting for ever since creation was created. This is the moment that they've been waiting for. So this story of triumphal entry, you will find in all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell us this is a very important event. Because as soon as Jesus stepped into Jerusalem, everything changes. Because now, Jesus no longer tried to hide his identity. He goes public with his identity. And from that point forward, there's no turning back. The die is cast. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world will now be slain in time and space. And this triumphal entry is actually just a momentary triumph before the great tragedy. Okay? Let's look at it together. I have three points for my sermon. The confrontational king, the counterintuitive king, 
and the coming king. Let's look at the first one, the confrontational king, verse 1 to 6. Now when they drew near near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, if you've been following us just in the book of Mark, this is very interesting. Do you know why? Because up to this point, whenever Jesus heals a person, whenever Jesus casts out demons, whenever Jesus does miracle, you know what he says? Hey, guys, don't tell anyone. Keep it, keep it quiet, okay? I, don't tell anyone about me. Okay, I want to have a low profile. Why? Because Jesus understands that the moment the news about him spread, he's in trouble. The religious leaders will want to kill him. That is why up to this point, Jesus has been saying, quiet, don't tell anyone what I did for you. Don't tell anyone that I'm Messiah. But then if you remember our last sermon of the book of Mark, remember the Bartimaeus story? When Bartimaeus, the blind guy, he, he, he heard that Jesus is walking past him. You know what he say? Jesus what? Son of David, have mercy on me. And that term son of David is actually a term that all Israel's know. It reverse to the Messiah. And you know, so, so what, but what Bartimaeus is saying is not calling Jesus, you know, your son of David. No, no. He's what Bartimaeus said, Jesus, the king sent by God. Jesus, the ultimate one that is sent by God to set the people free. Jesus, the one true king of Israel. Have mercy on me. And you know what Jesus say? Yes. Anyone calling me? For the very first time in this story, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, Jesus said, yes, I am the son of David which is very interesting. And from this point forward, Jesus intentionally drew attention to himself. He chooses to enter Jerusalem in such a way that he actually drew attention to himself. And we will see why, okay? Because nothing happened in this story by accident. Jesus actually arranged and orchestrated everything about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Look at what he does. It's very interesting. So Jesus starts by telling his disciples, guys, why don't you go ahead of me and arrange my transportation for me? And when I first read it, I was very surprised and I was shocked because it sounds as if Jesus is telling the disciple to go and steal a donkey for him. Right? I mean, imagine after church. As you walk out of the building, you see people trying to break into your car. That car that you spent a lot of money on and still on repayment for the next five years what will you do? You will walk up to that person, right? And you will confront that person. And what will you say? Because you just finished church and you are surrounded by church people. You know what not to say, all right? There's a couple of different four-letter words in your head that you want to say, but that word is not acceptable because you are surrounded by church people. So you know better. So you said, yo, what are you doing with my car? And they reply, the Lord has near of it. What will you do? You'll be like, which Lord are we talking about here? But then in the story, it goes, all right, here's the key. Isn't it strange? It sounds like divine robbery to me. 
It's as if Jesus is authorizing a donkey jacking. Now, we're not told how Jesus knows about the donkey. Well, it could be because he's God and he knows everything. Or it could be that he made prearranged plan with the owner of the donkey. Or it could be because he saw the donkey for the last couple of days. He's been in Bethany. And, you know, we do not know. But what we know is this. From this moment forward, Jesus is acting like a king. Jesus is acting as if everything belongs to him. He has planned everything to the last detail, and there's nothing about this entry that is accidental. He's in complete control. Well, the question will be, well, if that's true, why will he need a donkey? Because this is the only time you find in the gospel, Jesus actually rides an animal. Everywhere else, Jesus is walking. So why donkey now? Because Jesus is fulfilling one of the Messianic prophecy. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fault of a donkey. So Zechariah was prophesying to Israel after they had come back from exile and they rebuilt the temple and reestablished Jerusalem. Up to that point, Israel experienced many fail king after fail king after fail king after fail king. But then Zechariah said, don't worry, Israel, because the king sent by God is coming. But that king will enter, will come mounted on a donkey. Can you imagine that? This promise by Zechariah is given 500 years prior to Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. 500 years. That means 500 years before that, God already planned that there will be a donkey that Jesus can ride when he enters Jerusalem. I mean, you don't write this kind of script unless you are God. In other words, deeply rooted in the Jewish understanding of Messiah, is the hope of a king who will enter Jerusalem on a donkey. So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, right? So he, and he does not just write whatever donkey he finds, like us, just find random donkey, no, no. He's very specific. He said, I want donkey that no one has ever sat before. Now, do you know why? Because in the Old Testament, the king's bees only belong to the king. So king's right cannot be ridden by anyone else. And that is what Jesus passively said, I want a donkey that is unridden. And not only that, but pay attention to the way that Jesus talked about himself. Mark 11, verse 3. This is very interesting. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So Jesus does not say, well, guys, if people ask you why you want a donkey, tell them, you know that, that great teacher by the name of Jesus? That amazing teacher with a lot of wisdom, he wants it. Oh, no, no, no. He doesn't say, when people ask you, tell them, you know that miracle worker, the one that's able to heal the sick, that guy, Jesus, he wants it. No. Jesus specific. Tell them, the Lord needs it. So Jesus now referring to himself as the sovereign one. He, he, he has the right to all things because everything was made by Jesus and everything was made for Jesus, including this donkey. So when the owners heard that the Lord's needed, the owner said, all right, he can have it. Which tells us this is the demonstration of Jesus' authority as one true king. 
So Jesus is not only acting like a king, he's speaking like a king. So here's what we have. After many years of hiding his identity, suddenly Jesus goes public with who he is. Suddenly he's, he's telling everyone, I am a king. Why? Because he's confronting the people, in particular, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Because he's saying to them, because remember, he's entering the enemy's den. Jerusalem is where all the religious leaders are. This is the enemy's territory. So now he enters the enemy territory and he says this, I am the king that you've been waiting for. I am coming to Jerusalem as a king sent by God. I am exercising my authority as a king. And you only have two choices. You either crown me or kill me. So the only option they have now, the fact that Jesus revealed himself as a king, is to admit that he's king and give him everything, or they must destroy him. Nothing in the middle. Do you see how confrontational this is? And the same Jesus is saying to you and me. He's saying to us, listen, I am the sovereign king of the universe. Crown me or kill me. Because Jesus will not allow anything in between. And we must make a choice as a church. And here's the choice. Either we give Jesus everything and serve him completely, or we run from him and don't have anything to do with him. Either we worship him or we hate him. But the one thing that you and I cannot do is this. You and I cannot choose to like Jesus. Do you know what I mean by liking Jesus? Here's what I mean. We can't come to him and say, you know what, Jos? I like Jesus. Because Jesus is like, you know, he's my inspiration. He's my role model. He's my advisor. He's my counselor. He's my best friend. And Jesus will say, well, yeah, of course, I can be your inspiration. I can be your counselor. I can be your best friend. I can be all that. But first, I must be your king. Because I'm, if I'm not your king, I'm nothing to you. Either I have all of you or none of you. Worship me or hate me. But I won't let you like me. Crown me or kill me. Now, let me put it this way. The easiest, simplest way that I know is this. My name is Josiah Yusuf. There's Y in the middle, secret name. If you invite me to your house, let's say you find a new recipe and your mom teach you a new recipe on how to cook, uh, your mother-in-law, and then you decided to try and you want to invite me to your house. She's not here today. You guys do not know what I'm talking about? Okay, no, never mind. Let's say you invite me over to your house and you say, come in, Yossi. I like you. You're nice. But stay out, Yusuf. You are too preachy. You make me uncomfortable. That would be very difficult for me. Why? Because I don't have a Yossi part and I don't have a Yusuf part. I can't separate the two and put one outside the front door. I'm all Yossi and I'm all Yusuf. So you either get all of me or none of me. And the same is with Jesus. You can't say to Jesus, come in Jesus, stay out Christ. Come in Savior, stay out Lord. Come in Helper, stay out King. We either welcome Him or we get nothing. And if we welcome Him, then we must give Him everything. We must make Him the center of our life. There cannot be any part of our life where we decide on our own. 
They're not going to be on a part that said, you know what, I like Jesus when he talked about money. But I don't like Jesus when he talked about sex. This is my own body. I can do whatever I want. We can't do that. We either accept all of him, obey all of him, or we reject him altogether. And let me speak to Christian because I know most of us are Christian. Listen, Christian. Do not mistake associating with Jesus with submitting to Jesus. Let me repeat that. Do not mistake associating with Jesus with submitting to Jesus. Now, there's a one funny story in Acts chapter 19, right? Um, so what happened was, uh, Paul is planting a church in Ephesus, and the church grew, and people got to hear about Paul and everything, all wonderful thing that he does. And then there are seven men called the seven sons of Sceva. So the seven men here that Paul performed great miracles in the name of Jesus. And they say, this is cool. The name of Jesus has power. This is awesome. Let's try it out. So they went to a demon-possessed person, and they say, in the name of Jesus, the one whom Paul preaches, I cast you out. And one of them probably starts singing, there is power in the name of Jesus. And the other like, break every chain, break every chain. Like, so they do that. And while they do that, and while they try to cast out the demon, you know what happened? The demon-possessed person look at them and say, huh, Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who the heck are you? And then what happened next is really funny. So he attacks them and beat the servants of Sceva to the point that they run away naked. Okay? And if you get into a fight fully clothed and you get out of the fight but naked, let me just tell you, you lost. And this is what happened. See, the name of Jesus for Christians is not magic. It's not as if, you know, it's an incantation that you can, if I just say in the name of Jesus, then I will have the authority of Jesus. Or no. There's a big difference between associating with Jesus and submitting to Jesus. And Jesus is a king. And unless we submit to him, there's no power. So if we simply ask Jesus for help, but we're not submitting to him, let me tell you, it is useless. There is no power without submission. Jesus must be the king of our life, or he is nothing to us. He is the confrontational king. But look at the second one. The second one is even more bewildering. Jesus is the counterintuitive king. Verse 7 to verse 10. And they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he received royal copper treatment. Because people acknowledge what Jesus is doing. They know the Old Testament. They know that Messiah will come riding on a donkey. So they pay their homage by throwing their cloaks down the road in front of Jesus. This is the ancient way to welcome a victorious king. So what happens is, if a king wins a battle, he will enter a city riding a chariot. And then he will bring with him treasure he has collected. And his soldier will march with him, and he will have people they have captured strung behind them. And the people of the city will welcome their, their arrival. And this is what's happening. 
So this is what the people are doing to Jesus. They're giving Jesus the ceremonious welcome of a king. And that's why they're shouting what? Hosanna, 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 which means, Lord, save us. And then they quote Psalm 118. Blessed is he who come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. In other words, listen, they acknowledge that Jesus is king. They acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God. They acknowledge that Jesus is the king of Israel. But here is the problem. When they shout, Hosanna, Lord save us, they're not thinking of personal salvation. They're thinking of political salvation. They're thinking of national restoration. In their mind, they're thinking, this is it. Now we will overthrow the Roman government. Now we will have an earthly kingdom with Jesus as our king. Now do you see what happened? They are saying the right thing. They are quoting the Bible, but they have no idea what they're saying. They're hoping for Jesus to deliver, which he never came to deliver, which gives us a very, very strong warning. Here's the warning. Just because some people are passionate and quote the Bible does not mean they're right. There are a lot of passionate Bible-quoting people who are flat out wrong. Do you know why? Because it is very possible to use this book, okay? It is very possible to use this book to make it whatever we want to say. That is why when you listen to a sermon, your question, your concern should not be, what does Yoshi has to say? Because who cares what Yoshi has to say? Your concern when you listen to a sermon is this, what does the Bible has to say? Let me tell you a secret. Don't tell anyone. I actually could have made all my sermon 20 minutes shorter. And some of you are thinking, why didn't you? Right? Because 30-minute sermon every week, that would be great, right? We would go home earlier. Okay? Let me tell you why I didn't do it. Because if I do that, if I just tell you, here's what I think the Bible say, you will start to rely on me rather than looking at the Bible and find that this is actually what the Bible says. And that is why our regular diet is we want to show you what is written in the Bible. That's why we go deep about every verse because I want you to be convinced that what you hear is not what Yossi has to say. What you hear is what God has to say. Because let me tell you, it does not matter what I have to say. It doesn't matter what I think about Lestari. It matters what Jesus said about Lestari, and I'm pretty sure he loved Lestari fried rice. What matters is not what I think. What matters is what is written in the book. Because what we need is not human perspective on the Bible. What we need is the living Word of God in the Bible. And that is why, church, that is why it does not matter what is being preached. It does not matter how many followers the preacher has. It does not matter how big their church is. It does not matter how many best-selling books they have. If what they say contradict what is written in the Bible, we must reject them. But I want you to pay attention to the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Do you realize there's something odd with this entrance? Jesus entered Jerusalem riding a young donkey. Kings don't ride a donkey. Do you know who rides a donkey? Servants. 
So what we have is a Messianic king entering a city, riding like a servant. This is very counterintuitive. Like, you know, imagine the disciple, right? The disciple, they've been waiting for this day. So Jesus said to the disciple, hi, guys. I'm entering Jerusalem as a king, and they will welcome me as a king. And the disciple like, this is great. We've been telling you, Jesus, you need to do this. Finally, you listen to our advice. Guys, Paul, Peter, let's get the chariot ready. And Jesus said, Mm-mm, I don't want horse. I want donkey. And the disciple probably like, this is not a good idea. This is very bad PR. We need to hire someone for, to give Jesus re-over, re-image re-over, right? Because the thought of a king riding a donkey is very counterintuitive. Okay, let me put it this way. Imagine Queen Elizabeth came to Sydney. And then you actually make time to actually see her parading through Sydney CBD. And when you get to Sydney CBD, you saw Queen Elizabeth parading through Sydney CBD, riding a bicycle. Do you see there's something off with that image? But from the very beginning, God has planned that the great king, the Messiah, will come riding on a donkey. Why? Because Jesus is not only a king who come to rule. Jesus is a king who come to save his people. And he doesn't save his people by taking power and killing people, but by losing power and dying for his people. In other words, Jesus said, I'm going to conquer. I'm going to triumph through weakness. I'm going to rule through serving. I'm going to win through losing. I'm going to conquer by dying. This is why the Messiah come riding on a donkey. So what can we learn from it? First, we learn that this day is the greatest day in the life of this donkey. That's the non-essential lesson. But here's the important lesson. Jesus does not save us through strength, but through weakness. We are not saved by our good works, but by grace. Because if we're saved by our good works, then we're saved by strength. But salvation comes through Jesus giving his love and dying on the cross. That means salvation comes through weakness. And you and I can only receive it by grace. So that means if you think that you still can save yourself, if we think that we still contribute to our salvation, that means we have yet to know what salvation is. Because salvation is very counterintuitive to our understanding. Now let me explain to you what I mean. Almost all of us, when we come to God, we come to God because we have a need, right? We need something from Him. There's a story of a pastor of a church who is also a chaplain in a local hospital. So one night he received a call from the hospital in the middle of the night uh, because there was a man dying who wanted to talk to a pastor. So this pastor got to the hospital in the middle of the night and to see a man who wanted to talk to, to a pastor. But when he got to the hospital, the man apologized and said, well, I'm sorry. I, I, I really don't need to talk to pastor because what happened is I, apparently the hospital messed up. Apparently, I don't have cancer. So I don't need to talk to pastor anymore. I'm fine. You can go home. So the pastor smiled and went home. If I was the pastor, okay, I will not miss this opportunity to say, brother, 
you might not have physical cancer, but do you know what you have? You have spiritual cancer, and you are going to rot in hell because you make me come all the way here in the middle of the night for nothing unless you repent, right? I will do that, literally, if that's what's me. In other words, here's what happened. When we go to God, we have this need, and we say, God, I need you to give me exactly what I think I need from you. And if I don't need you, I don't want you. And this is what the people does with Jesus. They're excited about Jesus, but they do not understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. They're excited about Jesus fulfilling their own agenda. They think they know what they need, but they actually do not know what they need. They think what they need is political salvation. They don't understand what they need is to Messiah to save them from their sin. And you and I are prone to making the same mistake every day. Because it is very easy for us to create a Jesus of our own making. I love the way Alistair Beck put it. He's my favorite Scottish preacher. He said this, Unless we keep the gospel at the center of our thinking, our learning, and our living, we may inadvertently, unwittingly seek to create a Jesus of our own making. Now, do you hear that? If we, if we walk away from the story of the gospel, if we miss on the gospel, if we miss that the heartbeat of the Bible is about a Messiah who died for the sin of the people, then unwittingly, inadvertently, you and I will begin to create Jesus of our own making. Because unless we see the Bible as one big story to the lens of the gospel, you and I will miss the point of the Bible. You and I will miss the identity of our Messiah. And we create our own Jesus. And that Jesus is useless. So what we have here, the people are not accepting Jesus as their king. They are using Jesus for their agenda. And this is what sin is. You know what sin is? Sin is servant putting themselves in the place of the king. Do you know why you are so anxious? Do you know why sometimes it's really hard for you to sleep at night and you keep thinking about the very same thing every night again and again and again? Do you know why sometimes you're so upset, you're so mad when you do not get what you want? Let me tell you why. Because you believe, and I believe, that we know how our life is supposed to go. We believe that we have all the wisdom. We believe that we know what's best for us. And you know what that is? That is servant putting themselves in the place of the king. We say, I can rule my own life. I can control my own life. This is what I need. And that is the root issue of every problem, every fighting, every misery in your life. Sin, you put yourself in the place of the king. And the solution cannot be, oh, well, okay, fine. I need to stop putting myself in the place of the king. You can't. I can't. Because we are addicted to it. We want control. We want to be the one sit on the throne of our life. We want it. That's why to say it, all right, I cannot sit on the throne of my life. It does not work because by default, you and I, Desire that throne. So if we just say, well, stop being king, make Jesus king, it's like putting a band-aid in a heart wound. It's not going to work. 
So what's going to work? We must understand that the gospel is not salvation by strength. The gospel is salvation by weakness. Because this is what we have. Whereas sin is servant putting himself in the place of the king, the gospel is the king putting himself in the place of the servant. So salvation is Jesus coming and putting himself where we should be. He took the death penalty that you and I deserve. So let me sum it up all together. Point two. This is why Jesus come riding on a donkey. Jesus saying to us, I am a king, but I'm not a king like you think. I did not come to set you free from the Roman. I come to set you free from sin. Because what if I free you from the Romans? You will still be slave of sin. If I liberate you from the Roman, what are you going to do with your shame? What are you going to do with your guilt? What are you going to do with that desire inside of you, that wanting to be king? What are you going to do with the desire to control your own life? Because that is the reason that your life is in a mess. And if you continue to do that, you will continue to make mess after mess after mess after mess, and you are going to ruin your life even more. That is why I, as a king, I've come to set you free from you. I've come to set you free from you. I've come to give you true freedom. How? By having me sitting at the throne of your heart. One author put it this way. The story of triumphal entry is an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch between what you want from God and what God is providing. I love it. It is a lifelong mismatch between what we think we need and what God says we need. And what we think we need is almost always shallow. But the good news, God does not give us what we think we need. He gives us what we truly need. Very counterintuitive. But then, third one, is not only the confrontational king, not only is the counterintuitive king, the, second, the third thing, he is the coming king. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when we had looked at Uran at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple. He looked around and he noticed many things that he does not like. He sees how the temple has become a marketplace. He sees how the sacrifice has become an occasion for people to make money. And he is angered by it. And he's going to do something about it. But not this week, because I have to finish my sermon. That will be next week. But for now, Jesus said, okay, it's already too late. I can't do anything about it. It's already late. So he said to himself, I better go home and sleep. I'll deal with this tomorrow. So Jesus goes out of Bethany, and Jesus goes out to Bethany with his disciple. Now, when I first read this, it sounds like this is very complete anticlimax ending to Jesus' triumphant entry as the Messianic king, isn't it? Very anticlimax. Until I read one of the commentaries, okay? One of the commentaries tell us this. This is what happened. A few centuries earlier, the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the temple, leave Jerusalem, and ascend to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. So in the times of Ezekiel, the glory of God leaves the temple of God and goes toward Bethany. Listen. At the triumphal entry, 
the glory of God in human flesh, descend from Bethany and enter East Gate of Jerusalem and goes into the temple. Do you know what's happening here? In the time of Ezekiel, the glory of God left the temple. But when Jesus returned, the glory of God returned to the temple. And do you know what happened when the glory of God returned? Let me tell you. The glory of God will make everything that is wrong in the world become right. He will the glory of God will correct all injustice, comfort all suffering, and relieve every pain. So when the Jews think that when Messiah comes, Messiah will make everything right, they're not wrong. They're not wrong at all. Messiah will bring a new era of glory. But what they do not understand is that the Messiah will come twice. In the first coming, Jesus come on a donkey. He come in a humility and meekness. Because why? He come to make us right with God. He come to restore our broken relationship with God. And the King come to die for our sins so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. But that's not the only time Jesus come. Because the Bible tells us Jesus will come again. And on His return, He will not be riding donkey. He will be riding a white horse. Not my 86, a little white horse. He will end death and sin, and there will be complete peace. And that is why the way Jesus first come and the way He returns in the second coming is very different. Look at it. Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. It's beautiful. Then I saw heavens open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe deep in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has name written, King of King and Lord of Lord. Pay attention, and I'm done. Jesus has come, but Jesus will come again. And there's a massive, great differences between his first coming and second coming. In the first coming, Jesus came to die. In the second coming, Jesus will come to reign. In the first coming, Jesus came on a little donkey. In the second coming, he will come on a white horse. In the first coming, he came as a humble servant. In the second coming, he will come as an exalted king. In the first coming, he came in weakness. In the second coming, he will come in strength. In the first coming, he came to save. In the second coming, he will come to judge. In the first coming, he came in love. In the second coming, he will come in wrath. In the first coming, the glory is failed. In the second coming, the glory will be refilled. In the first coming, he came with the 12 disciples. In the second coming, he will come with army of angels. In the first coming, he came to bring peace. In the second coming, he will come to make war. 
In the first coming, he was given the crown of thorns. In the second coming, he will receive the crown of glory. In the first coming, he came as the suffering servant. In the second coming, he will come as king of king and lord of lords. So here's what we must get. For now, for now, Jesus is make lowly, welcoming, seeking, forgiving, and patient. But it won't last forever. Because a day will come where Jesus will come not to be crucified as a king, but to be crowned as a king. And until that day come, the Bible call us, tell us it is the day, it's the time of salvation. The time of salvation is right now. Because then it will be too late. Because then, if you have not given your allegiance, then you will be judged. You will receive eternal condemnation. Then there will be no negotiation. Then there will be no choice. But today, you still have a choice. So I urge you, if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, to not delay any longer. Because today, you still have a choice. Put your faith in Jesus. Humbly confess your sin before Him and receive His grace freely because the Bible tells us that this day, the day of salvation, He will not reject anyone who come to Him in, hum- in humility. doesn't matter how bad you are. doesn't matter what you've done in the past. doesn't matter how sinful you were. When you come to Him, His grace is available for anyone who desires So today is the day of salvation. Come before it's too late. But for a Christian, here's the good news. Our king has come, and he will come again. And his second coming is not something for us to be afraid of. It is something for us to look forward to. Because our king will return not to punish us. Our king will return to welcome us to eternal kingdom. And we will reign with him forever and ever. And we can have the confidence, not because we're strong, but because our king is strong. And we are covered in his blood and righteousness. That is why we sing, when he shall come in trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, Stand before the throne. That is my confidence. That is your confidence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that Jesus, you are a king. But you're not a king that we want. You're a king that our heart needs. And for the time again and again that we forgot that, forgive us and God I pray if there's any of us in this place who have yet to put our allegiance to you maybe we grew up in church maybe church is our weekly thing but we have yet to submit our life to you we have yet to trust you as our king I pray that today Lord you soften our heart humble our heart come to you in our weakness, in all our messiness, in all our sin and receive the grace from
freely because you have paid the consequences of our sin, the penalty of our sin once and for all at the cross. And help us to live submitting to your kingship. And God, for us, Christian, if sometime, Lord, we forgot that, forgot that you will return, remind us. And I pray that we look forward to the day that our king will return and our king will make everything right, that our king will make everything that is wrong, our king will fix everything that is broken in this world and make it new. Help us to look forward to that day and help us find strength and confidence knowing that that day is certainly coming for all of us. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.